welcome to Creative Loving Spirit. It's all about creativity. What is that? We don't know. It's just something we do. Basically, it's just two people in a room talking, and I'm one of them, and the other person is someone new. Perhaps to you, we don't know. So there we go. Mm. Hello. Here we are once again, for the last time in this little run. I've got a tiny headache because I've eaten too many fizzy strawberry laces, or fizzy strawberry lances as they're called. What is the difference between a lace and a lance? What indeed actually is a lance? What is a fizzy strawberry lance? I don't know, but I've had too much sugar and I've got red onion breath. Yep, that's the reality of my situation at the moment. So it's been about two months, no, over two months maybe about three months. But yeah, it's been about three months since the first episode of this podcast went up. And that zipped by pretty quickly. What have I learned? I don't know. I feel like I need to, or I would like to have some kind of reflective summation of, of all of the conversations and insights therein over the last three months. I haven't got the uh, the brain space at the moment. Um, maybe I should record this at some other point. Maybe I should challenge myself to try and get into the space. What have the last three months of the creative loving spirit been about for you, Paul? Ah, that's a very interesting question. Thank you very much for asking. Um, well, I guess, I guess my biggest takeaway is the joy of spending a quality of time with some people who I already admired in some way and getting to know them a little bit better. I think that's probably the thing. It's literally been being in the room. That's great, isn't it? Well, yeah, that really is. And what is it about being in the room? I don't know. Like, do like lay off. OK, I haven't got that in me at the moment. Yes, it does bear some thought, but perhaps not right now. Okay, then, so general appreciation for people. Yes, yes, that's it. That's exactly what the thing is. Great, well, that's fine. Cool. All right. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, I hope you like it. If you do enjoy it, do go back and check out the other episodes. When I say other episodes, it's other people, other very interesting creative people who are doing um, brilliant things quietly in some corner of the world and um, each of them has something to offer I think in terms of how they're going about that and the things they've learned along the way and perhaps in all of that might be something useful or interesting to you so go and have a listen to what the world's like from their perspective. <sighs> God, it's like pulling teeth today this really is. So this conversation is me speaking with Tim Fifield, who's a playwright and director and actor and an all-round live wire of a spirit. Tim is a very funny, very engaging, very curious and playful individual. And it's always a pleasure to be in his company. Me and Tim, along with our friend um, Jeremy, did a show together a couple of years ago in which we played three guys on a stag do in space. Tim played my overbearing father-in-law, Barry. Um, <laughs> oh, I just love the whole concept of that. And it was such an adventure. It was good. I've had lots of good times making theatre and other things with Tim. Uh, so I was really looking forward to speaking with him. And we sat down on a summer's afternoon over some refreshing beverages and bruschetta and had a nice chat at his kitchen table so please pull up a chair here is me speaking with tim fifield
can't do your job for you. Timothy, Robert Fifield. Yes. Hello. Good day. It's really nice to be here with you. It's nice to see you. There are a few people um, who I was thinking about speaking with in doing this podcast, and you were one of them. Lovely. And the reason for that is my thought towards who might be interesting to speak to is based on three criteria. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, their work. Yes. What they create. Yes. Number two, what matters to them, what they mm. love. Yes. Number three, their spirit. Basically who they are when they show up and who they are in the room. Yes. And I do love your work. And I do love what matters to you, but most importantly, I just, uh, yeah, I've, I felt it's, it's who you are as a human being that's of interest Excellent. to me. And that's why... And then, so then I was thinking, um, oh, what is that? Because I could just say that. What does that mean? So mm. I wrote down some things. Excellent. Some observations. Oh, this is really good, Paul. Right? Yeah. Go on. This is, this is not exhaustive, so right. there might, might be other things. Okay. Okay. So I thought, what have I noticed uh, about, about him? Um, I think in, in the performing creative sense, because that's how I know you. Yes. First of, all, first of all, I think you have a... An acute insight and ability to embody characters and the detail of their lives. And you take a great joy in this. Mm -hmm. um, and I've noticed that in my... Uh, how I feel in your company, I, I make you, feel, uh, you make me feel valued um, and safe, listened to. I think you create a, a situation where it's permitted to be playful and to have fun. Um, um, I noticed that people really, really enjoy your company. I think you have a great curiosity um, and a ability to listen to and take joy from other people, which is something we've spoken about a little bit before. Yes. I think you have a high in degree of emotional intelligence, <laughs> generosity and critical thinking. Oh, thank you very much indeed. That's just like a very unprocessed uh, <clears throat> raft of things. Yes. Um, all that said, what in there seems meaningful and true for how you think about yourself and what you do, and what's missing? Well, I like the emotional intelligence piece. You know, I think um, you mentioned a little bit about you know being insightful and listening to people. I have a curiosity about people. Um, that is unquenchable, unquenchable. That's not a word. Unquenchable. Quenchable. Unquenchable. Brand new word for 2018. Um, and so ultimately, uh, I love people's stories. I love listening to them, and I love listening to the layers of them. Mm -hmm. So I like the initial conversation, but I also like getting really deep and understanding people. And I suppose a lot of uh, my creative output is based on what I notice of people in terms of what they say, mm. how they say it, and crucially what they don't say. Uh, and, uh, and picking up on those things, which is reflected back out in the work that I put out there. Mm. So, just very quickly actually to go back, how, mm. how do you describe your creative self or ventures you know what what labels do you give uh, well i think i would like to be known as a playwright mm. um i've written a number of plays short plays mainly short plays um and i think if i died tomorrow i'd like that to be part of my eulogy mm. um i love theatre, I love the expression of theatre, I like working with people, I like that whole creative process, um, I like the playfulness of creating plays, mm. um, based on a very, very simple process of um, what if, you know, and that's kind of really any fictional um, uh, creation is based on a set of what ifs, mm. and and making that as interesting as possible without getting overcomplicated or confusing people. Mm. So I think I would like to show up 
as a playwright. Yeah. Is the other stuff important? Because you do perform. I do perform, yeah. And you direct as well. Yes. But it's the the creating the story and and, and that world that is... Yeah, it hasn't always really been that way. I First up, I started acting, and I really love acting. Um, That's my sort of initial passion, and my entree into theatre was based around acting and performing other people's words. Um, I really enjoy the directing process, and I love that in lots of different ways. Giving people permission to do stuff in a free and safe environment is thrilling. Mm. Um, And getting people to a different place is absolutely thrilling. So I reserve the right to say that directing is possibly on an equal part to writing. Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, all of those things kind of meld as part of the creative process. And having an understanding of Acting, directing and writing, I think, allows you to be better in every department. Mm, That's actually one of the questions I had, because I have a similar sense. um, I kind of think of them as a bit of a triangle. And if you can sharpen one point, then it helps the other two. Um, But you quite clearly see that they are um, complementary sort of skills. I think certainly with acting, you know, Mm. I did a one-man show once, and um, uh, I spent... in. An enormous amount of time just talking to myself, creating characters, situations, and going over and over and over this whole thing. So I spent huge amounts of time being an 86-year-old man with an incontinence problem, uh, a, a morbidly obese woman from Manchester missing her dead husband, um, being a very angry ex-husband. You know, all of these things, inhabiting those worlds is really, really important from an acting point of view to be able to viscerally feel those emotions, yeah. to be able to then translate that onto into a script. So I think it's inextricably linked. And also, having the experience of being directed, I think, allows you to be um, a more compassionate director yeah. and a more inventive and innovative director as well. How much of... Um your experience of say directing other people so you talk about wanting to create a situation where they're permitted to and safe to play and have fun and go to different places how much of that is is that trying to recreate your genesis of those things it's, it seems like you, you you give yourself a lot of freedom to enter into that what if space even if it's on yeah. your own mm. is that about trying to guide some people to that same yes i that's my methodology mm. and if other people are, are, are happy to go along with that methodology i will assist them and help them if people need more focused attention then I feel like I also can do that. So if it's more of a point-and-shoot type of directing that people need from me, I'm aware that I can do that as well. But I'm very, very interested to see how far I can push people in the rehearsal process. Mm. And you know, we worked together on shows in the past, and you know, I've enjoyed watching your playfulness, You know, the ability to take something and... Um, really stretch the elastic of it um, and in some ways then get an amazing result from it in terms of the way that people interpret words and movements and actions. Mm. So acting was the sort of introduction to theatre. Yes. But why acting? Why, Why was acting a possibility or attractive to you? Where was your inspiration or influence in your life that pointed to that? Uh, Anne Tonkin. Who's Anne Tonkin? Anne Tonkin was my English teacher at O-Level, at Thomas Bennett School in Crawley. Um, And Anne was fantastic. I was a very, very shy boy, you know, painfully shy, underarms sweatingly, puce-facedly shy. I mean, it was was (laughs) bone-melting shyness. The sort of shyness that if somebody mentioned my name, I would go 50 shades of red. Um, And so... um, and she kind of recognised that and pushed me to go and do some drama with John Harris Rees, who was the drama teacher at Thomas Bennett um, back in whenever I went, which would be the late 70s, I guess. Um, 
And I just found a, a way of expressing myself that hitherto I'd not come across. The ability to be quite loud and, and, and playful and um, tell stories and try and find the truth of things. Um, and I essentially got picked for a couple of lead roles um, kind of around sixth form time. Mm. And that was transformational. That allowed me the insight to know that I could act. Um, I wasn't particularly brilliant at the time, obviously being quite young, um, but I was, I was hungry for knowledge of how to get better. Mm. Um, and I got to the stage where I did audition for the National Youth Theatre um, and uh, because I really felt that this is something that I wanted to pursue professionally and uh, I had to do two uh, pieces one of which was um, a Shakespeare mm. so I did Edmund's speech at one scene two thou nature art my goddess to thy law my services are bound and then um, a piece from Little Malcolm and his struggle against the eunuchs. Um, and I managed to do the Shakespeare really, really well. And then I cocked up this speech from this Little Malcolm and the eunuchs. What thing. was that about? Uh, women respond to me. They sense something in me. And as a young person, it was obviously a, a highly inappropriate piece to be doing, right. <laughs> which I now I really subsequently um, uh, understood. But I completely cocked it up. I really fouled it up. And when I looked up, I saw a panel of people looking at me, one of whom I recognised... Now, I can't actually remember who it is, unfortunately, right. but I, it, it was obviously somebody in the theatre world, and it completely spooked me. Went out to the, the hall, um, got the book so that I could read it, but by the time I got back, the moment had gone, and I didn't get in. Right. And so I think that moment of failure right. kind of defined the way that I then took my creativity forward insofar as I knew that I wasn't going to necessarily be a professional actor, but that I'd actually got there and that I would be able to still maintain an interest in performance and then subsequently directing and writing. So it didn't deter you fully from that, but you made on some level a decision that you yeah. would go down a different area. Which I sort of kind of regret a little bit. I don't really live in the past or yeah. um, harbour regrets. How old were you sorry, when this um, I think Thing. I must have been in the sixth form, so probably 15 or oh, 16. Very young. So I was very, very yeah. young. Oh, no, actually, probably a bit older than that, because if it was a sixth form, it would be 17, wouldn't it? So I think I was 17 years of age. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was just one of those things where I think if I'd have just had a little bit more experience mm. um, and confidence and maybe just took a bit more time to get myself prepared... Uh, I, I, I possibly my my history could have been completely rewritten, mm. but I'm not worried about it because I've had great experiences outside of that anyway. Yeah, and clearly, um, yes, you, you you learn from it, or it's it's influenced your life in some other positive way. Yes, it's not like a something was closed off and never ever ever more should we ever do it. Yeah, and I think you know my ability to work with young people now is based on understanding some of the crushing insecurities that creative people often have about mm. themselves and their self-image, their own abilities, is that you, if you've got an insight into that, I think you can help people get to a better performance level. Mm. So hopefully, I think in some weird way, being a bad National Youth Theatre candidate <laughs> has possibly made me a, 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 a more rounded director. experience of walking into drama lesson and finding a space which allowed you to be in a new way which made sense to you to be loud and to tell stories and 
to be curious about people. Mm. So all those those were things that were in you that were just not necessarily given a channel. Um, was was that sort of that emotional intelligence thing there? You know, that interest in people was that still as, as a young as a kid? That, Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I used to write sketches, yeah. and um, uh, we had a thing at Thomas Bennett called the Badger, which was a sort of review show, a gang show mm. essentially. And funnily enough, somebody posted a picture on Facebook recently of a massive blackboard in the room backstage. Actually, it was the smoking room of the sixth form. Um, and all of the sketches that were coming up, um, myself and my friend David Ainsworth, uh, well, we were great fans of Pete and Dud, so we did a couple of Pete and Dud sketches. Uh, someone coming through on green, Rich. Um, and I really I loved all of that. And mm. that sort of harboured my interest. In a, it was a kind of an unofficial way of getting into theatre I suppose um, but yeah I think um, uh, yeah, that whole notion of what was the question? The question was, um, was sorry <laughs> was that sort of emotional intelligence and curiosity in people uh, present as a, as, as a young man when you were going in yeah. into that yeah definitely I was always very interested in looking at um, people's lives where they come came from mm. um, what what their hopes and dreams were you know it's always a big question I was very interested and genuinely so in what people's lives are all about and yeah. uh, I think that's informed some of the work that I've done subsequently so um, still sticking in that, that that time of your life so that was all, all, all there um, and, and there was an outlet that sort of presented itself in terms of performance and theatre but where in your life before that was that was that living? Was that completely untapped or did it find other outlets? Uh, or where did you feel safe or enabled to be like that? Um, I did write a lot when I was yeah. very young. So um, I think there is um, evidence that I wanted to become an author right. when I was younger. Um, so I've always had that kind of creative spirit I suppose, you know, I've always wanted to tell stories. And I think a lot of that was informed by my mother. You know, my mum was a really great raconteur. And uh, she was just this incredible um, enabler of great stories that on further telling would be embellished and enhanced and all this sort of thing. But she was famous for not necessarily having punchlines, but just telling amusing anecdotes and I think I was very, I was kind of almost in awe of that. And so I did a lot of creative writing when I was younger. Mm. And so I suppose to a certain extent, the transition into playwriting was quite an obvious one. You know, you're engaged with people and their emotions. Mm. You're writing stories. You know, it makes sense to, in some ways, express that in a physical context. Mm which is where I think it kind of came from. Did you do a lot of that? Did you did you perform or act physically around the house uh, and at home with your Yeah, parents? my my mother and I spent a huge amount of time playing. So uh, there was a period of time, I'm not quite sure exactly when it was, when I used to come home for lunch and we would invariably play Scrabble, um, turn off Pebble Mill at one, uh, obviously, we, we can only do one thing at a time, and um, and but occasionally I would come home and we would be just two characters, so we just act. We would be Americans. Uh, we would do the entire lunch hour in song, uh, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Would you like some pickle? Yes, I'd like some pickle, please. And it was just lovely, and I think that was one of the joys of my life that I, I can, I've now found people in my life yeah. that I can share that kind of playfulness with. You kind of recreate that kind of going along with it. Yes. Improvisational. Yeah, <laughs> I love all of that. Yeah. And, and I think just the desire to be playful, um, I don't really take too many things that seriously. Mm. You know, I take things seriously that I need to take seriously, but um, I do invariably find humour in most things so you know that's just the way I'm built I think <laughs> that's just the way I'm wired um, 
have you ever had a time or what times in your life have you if ever have you felt like that creative spark or spirit been squashed or pushed out or not valued um i think when i had children mm. um in 1988 and 1990 obviously I was somewhat distracted from the creative process mm. in favour of putting nappies on clearing up various bodily fluids not mine I have to say the children's so I think it was sort of suppressed a little bit but I was doing quite a lot of music at the time so I was in uh, I was writing music in a studio in Oxted with some people so the, the creative flow the, the output was was music because I just couldn't afford um, as much time for theatrical pursuits. But I think I got back into it earnestly, probably in my early 40s. And that was a really rich scene for me, where mm. I sort of, I had the benefit of quite a lot of experience um, and, and reflection, and the time to also put into the mix the fact that I'd become a father. I was a father at 24. Um, mm. And so I kind of lived quite a lot of big experiences by that time and was able then to start writing kind of interesting plays. Yeah. Not necessarily just about being a parent, but just the, the whole thing about the dynamics of your life at that time and who you're, you know, you, you know you've got parents, you've got children, you've got familial obligations and the dynamic of that is a rich scene for subsequent yeah. writing i think and as as <clears throat> an observer and an appreciator of people I, I wonder having children i mean you're very much exposed to their developing experience of yes. the world as an observer that must be an interesting place to be in absolutely yeah. yeah i mean i think it's it's a fascinating thing parenting generally speaking is um a kind of a, a bit of a poison chalice i think you love your children, you know, you, you realise that you love another human being more than yourself. Mm. It's unconditional. Um, you're doing things that you don't expect to be doing. Um, but you're also learning. You're learning from people. You know, you're, I, get as, I think I got as much out of my children as I was getting out of any adult. That learning, the sense of wonder that children have... Mm. The fact that they're completely fresh, mm. they're complete, so everything is a surprise, um, uh, you know, and an emotional thing. Um, and I just, I, I loved that part of it. And I suppose to a certain extent, I, I couldn't, my, my creativity was suppressed at that time because I was just drinking in their experiences and their mm. wonder. And I, I just loved it. I loved that time. Is that true? Is that true? So I recognise there's sometimes in the creative uh, life there are there's cycles. There's time to be very busy and putting some things out there, and there are times to kind of be fallow and get nourished by things. Is that yes. true generally for you? Definitely. Yeah. Um, I know when I'm in a creative period and when I'm just. I'm just turned off, essentially. Mm. Um, I'm taking on stock all the time, but sometimes I just don't feel that I can necessarily you know, work on that. Uh, it would just need to be banked for, for future mm. endeavours. What's um, the bravest you think you've been in something that you've made? Did anything really feel like heart in mouth? Oh, God, maybe I've overstepped it this time. <clears throat> well... Um, I think when I took on the one-man show, I did a one-man show called Not What We Expected. Which was brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. And um, I just got into this really weird thing that I wanted to create um, ten characters, all of whom uh, had suffered a big swerve in their life for whatever reason. Um, and kind of some of the characters joined up with each other. Some of them were sort of standalone pieces. Mm. And, and I don't know whether number 10 came out, but I became obsessed with having 10 characters. So I did a whole range of characters, a butcher from Hull um, and uh, a pious Christian woman and 
uh, various other and a dog called Vernon who was quite disappointed um, and I think if you know if I was to if be remembered by anything I, I would love for people to just kind of remember that because I I took something on that seemed completely doable at the time and then in the process I thought oh no I've got 10 characters here and I can't do nine now can't do 11 got to wait I've got to do 10 um, and whilst I had a, loads and loads of material it I, I basically rehearsed every day for a year to create the show um, just getting in the sand tray talking to myself um, and just developing these characters and these stories and then I arrived at a show um, and got to a theatre and the tech people said oh can we have the script and I'd never written it down <laughs> I'd never actually written this piece down and there's all well, we need to know for sound cues and, and lighting and of course I know this <laughs> yeah. but it just sort of it escaped me that yeah. this would need to be done and that's when I realised oh I've got to make this a sensible show so I had to top and tail each of the, the, the monologues so there were 20 monologues or so um, in this two hour show and so I had to then recreate notes and stage notes and be really on the money in terms of what I was giving the technical people yeah um, but that was my biggest seat in the pants moment I think it's very ambitious I saw, I think I saw that show twice actually, and it was very thrilling to to watch you just embody these things and shift between these really distinct voices. Yes, and you do have a way of creating characters who are very lovable. And I'm not, I'm not to say that the, I'm not to say they have no edge or anything like that. But I think it comes from the fact that I think you seem to genuinely love them. There's something about yes. them which is, you know, important to you. But in, in that particular experience, it's, so it's very ambitious, but it sounds like you were writing it and performing it and making directorial level decisions about it all at the same time. It's like the bleed between those different roles is yes. quite a lot. Although I did benefit greatly from working with David Healy, uh, who... Um, uh, is a greatly admired director and I've worked with him a lot mm. before in Forum Theatre and various other uh, things. Um, but he was really, really good at helping me just tweak the finer detail mm. um, and just put a bit of shine on things, you know, because I was very, very anxious. I mean, it's a very exposing thing to do a one-person yeah. show. Um and what you don't want to do is to put anything in there that can trip yourself up. And he was really, really good at spotting any potential pitfalls in that process because it was quite a fast show, um, you know, morphing from character to character. And um, I was just anxious that, A, the, the characters had very uh, distinct um, characteristics and voices and... Mm. Um, motivations and intentions um, and that it would be a really um, a, 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 a cohesive piece of drama rather than just a man showing off that you can do 10 different voices mm. you know that I wanted to make it funny but I also wanted it to be crushingly sad when it needed to be crushingly sad if mm. somebody was mourning the death of their husband and their friend Beanie, who's a sort of cod um, psychic, is saying, I make contact with your husband. You know, we as, as the audience, you know, putting it out there, is, well, is she a charlatan, is she not? Mm. You know, is Maureen being taken in by this person? And inhabiting that world was really, really thrilling. And every single performance, I did loads and loads of performances of it, mm. Every single performance, I absolutely felt those characters. Mm. The, the most visceral, you know, organic level, you know. And it's really weird, you know, at the time that I was doing this show, it's quite some time ago, but, um, you, you know, I was just a sort of average-sized, um, you know, 40-year-old man uh, in my 40s. And, um, and yet I was inhabiting the world of... Um, 
a woman from Manchester that was morbidly obese, mm. you, you know, and thinking really hard about what that feels like, what the challenges are associated with those conditions, mm. and, and literally feeling like that. You know, as I was playing that character, I was sweating as a woman would who was suffering with swollen ankles and, and a, a heart that was racing and all that kind of thing. So I, I, that, I loved doing that, yeah. absolutely loved it. How do, you know, how, how do you know you're done with a piece of work? How do you know that that's, it's had its life? Um, I'm not sure that you ever do, really. Mm. I, you know, I think at some point you have to put a stake in the ground and say, <clears throat> this is the piece that I've created. This is the story I want to tell. This is the truth that I want to um, expose. Um, and I think you probably, certainly when you're doing performance yourself, mm. there's a certain level of satisfaction knowing that you've kind of told the story, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, and that you can't really tell any more because you'll end up unpicking it or actually diluting the, the message. Mm. So I'm, I'm always very anxious not to overwrite. I mean, when I wrote my first play, it was so magnificently overwritten. <laughs> it was just, I, I, it's so embarrassing. Um, one of the lines I gave to a woman who was desperate to have a baby was, I will not be demoted into human steerage on the basis of womb ownership. I mean, what sort of twat writes things like that? I, I actually wrote that, and somebody, some poor woman had to perform it. And they agreed to say it. And they agreed to say it, unquestionably. <laughs> now, I would never, ever go anywhere near so that. that so, that's, um, so that's knowing when you're done cooking yeah. a script. But in, in terms of staging your work or performing it, because yeah. so what, what made me think of it is the commitment you made to um, not what we... Were expecting or expected? Not what we expected. Not what we yeah. expected. Um, was an awful lot of uh, development, performance and writing um, over a year um, to stage it. And you did it several times. But um, were you happy with the life that had, you know, uh, being shown? Have you ever left anything thinking, oh, there's still a bit more juice left in that? And is that okay? You know. um, I've always been sort of tempted to revisit mm. that show. Um, but I'm also highly conscious that you must not live off past glories mm. and you must move forward. But I did become very, very connected to those characters um, and, and I felt very affectionate toward them. Um, and it's like leaving friends behind. It was literally like being in a show with other actors and all of the associated relationships but it was with my, the characters in my head. Um, so it's quite, it was quite difficult to leave it. Mm. I, I, I think there's probably a couple of the characters that could have spin-offs. <laughs> <laughs> in a Frasier style. But um, I, I haven't really seriously revisited it. I, but I would like to do another one-person show, definitely. Maybe that's the, the takeaway. Yeah. Creatively or otherwise, just as any. Um, I uh, I admire. Well, before you mentioned David Healy, David mm. Healy was very formative. We've got great knowledge about David and his work and his working methods and his kindness, his compassion, mm. but also his commitment to to finding the truth and telling it. So I've always loved working with David. Um, there's so uh, working with you when we, we did a Brighton Fringe show a few years ago, yeah, fantastic. and that exposed me to different ways of working. Um, we spent fifty hours developing an idea that eventually became an hour-long show, mm. <clears throat> and you, me, and Jeremy, yeah, <clears throat> Jeremy Joseph, and uh, and that was really revelatory. You know, I'd never ever been involved in a production where you literally get into a room with nothing 
and you're trying to create something. You might have some frameworks and some some loose ideas, but literally playing physically, mentally, verbally with ideas, that was really inspirational. So you, Paul, oh, well, that's great. are part of Team Tim. <laughs> Anyone else like in the history of your life, even outside of the creative thing, but just... Um, anyone you kind of look towards as a role model for like, yeah, they've kind of got an angle on life that seems to make sense. Yeah, I think um, uh, because I was really, really shy, um, I think teachers are really important to people. And uh, the aforementioned Anne Tonkin, who had a haircut that resembled a Bakelite telephone. Um, (laughs) It was very nice. And... uh, she was really fantastic. She recognised something in me. Mm. And then subsequently my teacher, John harris Reese, um, drama teacher, again, permissive, trusted my ability, saw through my shyness and just got me up there. I think they are people who will forever be part of um, my creative journey. Mm. Um, and of course, like this in the public eye that I, I really admire um, for sort of different reasons really um, I spend my wife and I Mandy we spend a lot of time up at the National Theatre so I love going to see um, very innovative plays at the National okay they're chucking a lot of money at them so you've got lots of big towers that swirl around and all that sort of thing but I love the uh, inventiveness so I've, I've really enjoyed all of the stuff that Nicholas Hinto's put out and all of the people within the National Theatre um, I've just been totally inspired by by those sorts of people okay the, the teaching thing um, you mentioning your teachers there it's come up quite a, a lot in the conversations I've had um, how influential that early encouraging insightful kind of presence is and it seems like that's something that you recreate in the way you work just having been part of that yeah Um, definitely where is your learning edge at the moment where is right on this edge of your comfort zone that you know that calls you to step towards to challenge yourself in your creative work um my the cliff edge of yeah the... creativity my beachy head yes <laughs> um that's a really interesting question and i'm not quite sure whether i know what the answer is um i would like to think that i'm fearless mm. but i'm also uh i think I don't like to take risks that I think will offend or upset people just for the sake of it. Mm. So I do stuff which I feel uh, takes me to my creative edge, but I don't think I'm ever going to win any awards for being a completely outlandish, you know, disruptor. Mm. I, you know, I think my kind of um, approach is gentle. I like to be kind. You know, if if I need to make a point, I'll make the point. But I'm I don't really. Um, I did a, I did a bit of stand up comedy once, mm-hmm. and uh, and I I sort of loved it. I thought it was really really good fun, and I went on a stand up comedy course, um, and in this course there were a, a load of people. There was a, a an air. Um, aircraft investigator a taxi driver um, a magician um, who turned up because I want to find a way of joining my tricks up with jokes so I thought if I came on the comedy course I could get some jokes to put in between my tricks and he was very funny but the taxi driver was called Jim and Jim told these amazing stories, all right, and they were absolutely peppered with profanity. Yeah. And it was just relentless. <laughs> F bombs all over the place. And 
I, I thought, oh, I, I just don't know whether I want to be on the bill with this guy. Um, but then I began to really listen to these stories and they were heartfelt, beautiful articulations of life living in the East End of London with parents who were living on very little money. Mm. Um, and there was one particular story that he told about some pineapple chunks. They were living in just terrible, terrible circumstances. And uh, his father uh, uh, said to him and his brother, I'm going to take your mother out for a meal, all right? I want you to be good boys. And uh, I can't afford a pudding, so we've got a tin of pineapple chunks, all right? Don't eat the pineapple chunks. And but he, he used a lot of f bombs in in that, that right. thing, and uh, and and then he told this really beautiful story about his brother uh, and him trying to resist the temptation of this tin of pineapple chunks, <laughs> and eventually giving in to temptation and prizing him up with a screwdriver, no. drinking the juice like it was champagne, and uh, and then savouring these chunks. I need to hear the Ford Anglia come back and park. And his father going absolutely bonkers. And it was just this really brilliantly told story mm. uh, in, and, um, in the sort of style, uh, sort of offbeat style of sort of some of our brilliant comedians of today. And I, I was really inspired by that, that you can be, you, you can use language to articulate situations um, and, uh, and be really brazen about it um, and I loved it and I did a little thing of, I can't remember what my comedy thing was I think I did a, a montage of songs based around the theme of diamonds and, <laughs> and some various offbeat sort of stuff but I really enjoyed doing the stand-up comedy and that I think helped me understand a bit of the stagecraft associated with putting plays on. Is there anything that you want to do you know if, if all things were possible what would be your dream project or something particular you might want to realise? Well, um, I have recently had a bout of ill health, mm. and um, uh, which was kind of interesting. And I had a seizure. Uh, I'm quite a well person, but I managed to quite spectacularly throw myself into a bush. Sadly, not Kate Bush. It wasn't a wily, windy moor. It was Horsham Park. And... Um, Essentially, uh, then I was scooped up by uh, the NHS operatives. Uh, I was found to have a colloid cyst, which was removed up at St George's in Tooting. Um, and I was there for 12 days. And in that experience, I mean, it's manna from heaven for a, for a playwright. I saw the very, very best of people. Mm. Um, in terms of the care, the technical provisioning, the abundance within a system that apparently, if you read the papers, is completely broken. Mm. But I tell you, if you need an MRI scan and then a £27 million bit of kit or a sachet, sachet of shampoo, you know, the NHS is pretty good. Uh, and also clean pyjamas. Um, so um, I want to write a show not necessarily about me and, and this, the thing, to use that as, if you like, the, um, uh, the platform to celebrate the brilliance of people. The notion that, certainly in the NHS, you've got a building uh, that has two sets of people, um, one of whom are trying to uh, get better or stay alive, the other of whom are trying to get them better or, or keep them alive. And that simple and beautiful human contract, I think is worthy of something. Mm. So I'm just piecing together um, a way in which I can articulate that from the viewpoint of being a patient, um, observing other patients, um, observing how you're viewed by your peers, your friends and family. Um, the, uh, the staff, and all of the various intricate relationships. I think um, that, that would be my next project, and I think I'm going to call it mm. NHS, <laughs> an affirmation of good people in the National Health Service. You heard it here first. Thank you.
working title. Exclusive. <laughs> so that's kind of, well, that's part of processing or somehow reflecting upon your experience. Yeah, I mean, that, that I just, uh, as I said, it's not an ego-based thing. Yeah. You know, people go through hospital all the time. Um, so I'm not special in that. But I think my um, observation of, of it and being able to express how that made me feel and would be of benefit to people that may be fearing hospital themselves or maybe observing a loved one in that position or even just going to visit somebody in hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a really interesting dynamic that goes on in a hospital environment similar to the way that we created um, our show Mankind based on three men in space. Mm. You know, you've got six men in a ward, you've got a closed environment um, where some people are going to thrive and other people hardly survive. So Mm. it's uh, that I think would be exciting. And I think in bearing in mind that the NHS is 70 years old, you know, I'm not 70 years old, but um, uh, it it would be a, a way of me um, celebrating my good fortune, you know, not everybody gets a good outcome from the thing that I had. So to be able to give that back, I think, would be really quite useful for me and for anybody else that's in the mode of health. Mm. <laughs> lovely. Tim's getting a glass of water at the moment. He's stepped away from the interview. Hopefully this isn't a walkout. No, he's returned. His, his agent has had a word. Yep. He seems to have calmed down. Everything's fine. I'm back in the room, everybody. Yay! And uh, sorry about that. Yeah, my, my, my agent said, get on with it. Uh, don't get precious. It's, it's just a podcast. Don't worry about it. Thank you. Next question, please. Um, it's kind of... I don't think of a way to phrase this. So I was thinking about your description of yourself as a, as a child and that, that shyness. Um, but still, sounds like you're fizzing with something. There was, there was some kind of spark in there that maybe didn't have space to come out. Um, and I don't know whether or not you felt like you had to find something or when it, or if it was a, a revelation when you did find an outlet for that. But I'm just wondering what you might say to that person or to someone you notice in that same position of clearly having something going on internally, yes, yes. Um, but is almost crippled by the sort of shyness. I don't know, that's the self-doubt thing that comes into that as well. I don't know, do you, how, how might you yeah, relate to them or um, advice or... Yeah, I've thought a lot about this and I did a talk once in Brighton in a forum called True Stories Told Live where people were given 10 minutes to tell a story and it could be every, anything and uh, in amongst the people that were speaking there was a man that was um, holed up in a maximum security prison in America uh, there was a woman who'd come out as a lesbian at 64. A woman who'd written a, a, a very successful song in the 70s. And then me doing a talk on overcoming shyness. It was a, right. I, I felt a little bit, I'm ever so sorry, everybody. Everybody seems to be so much more advanced in their lives than me. I'm just talking about shyness. If I was to go back to talk to myself, um, I, I would say that you need to being uncomfortable isn't the worst thing in the world you know it's an obvious thing about getting out of your comfort zone but actually um finding something that you can you can happily express and be comfortable in and just doing it to the highest level that you can get is really important so whether it, it manifests itself in sport um you know join the best team you can you know 
get engaged in that process. If it's art, then, you know, don't keep your art in a back room. Get it displayed, get it out there. Um, it's very easy when you're older to look back and say, just get out and do it. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I was really, really lucky that I had people that helped me do that. But the world will not open up and swallow you if you fail at something. Um, but it will close up to you if you don't try. It's so important to just take a risk um, and ask lots and lots of questions and really listen to the answers. That's kind of the advice that I would give to my, my younger self. Mm. So, yes, so recognising that it's not as simple, or it can be, it, it can fit, not feel as simple as just go and do it, put it out there, but there's something about signposting your interest either through an effort or asking questions or yeah. finding some support sending out some kind of signal to the universe that this is important to you yes um and trusting that that will bring something about but if, absolutely if all of that stays locked away then how is anyone going to ever know yes yeah i think it's really difficult because shy people um you know tend to do that damage limitation thing mm. you, you know um uh, you know, there's some very, very famously shy people who've done very, very well. Um, but it can be quite crippling. And as a younger person, I sympathise with anybody who's not just... It's not even low self-esteem. I don't even think... I don't even think the term had been invent, invented when I was uh, uh, peddling around with my puce face. Um, but... Um, it, uh, it's just that feeling that um, you just can't risk anything. You can't risk being made to look stupid. You don't volunteer for anything. You don't put your, your, your hand up. But I think, you know, if I could just give anybody, in uh, any young person, any advice, is just to, to try and find a, a way of parking that insecurity, even if it's just for a short moment. Um, I think auditions are really interesting. You know, you, you go and see people in auditions and some people are absolutely quaking in their boots. And those are the people that really get my attention. People who are having to force something through. Mm. Whereas the brash, self-assured people, I mean, they might be exceptionally talented and they might ultimately get picked. But it, I'm really interested in those people who've got those little sort of nuances of... Of, of shyness that you know you just kind of know that they've got something behind them and um, so I'm sort of aware of how important it is to push people to the forefront and and and, and move them on yeah oh, that, that's 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 a wonderful um, observation that actually even just a small effort might put you in the attention of someone who will have the insight to see a little bit beyond that you know you don't have to come out singing and dancing but if you mm. come out trying mm. then the world is awake enough for yeah. people who know what to look for for you to be spotted one of the key things i think paul for me is um certainly as i got into adulthood is the notion of saying yes and not overthinking things mm. so if you're given an opportunity just say yes because you can always kind of get out of something if it's just horrible, dangerous or unsettling. Um, but, you know, I do say yes to a lot of things. I say yes to meetings with people where my gut feel might be, I don't know what, what this is going to yield for me or for that other person, to be honest with you. But invariably, saying yes introduces you to a lot of different ideas and attitudes and even meetings that I have in business with people that are you know difficult situations hard meetings to control I always come out thinking I'm better for that experience because mm. I said yes you know I'll take that on yeah. so being a yes person I think is very very important yeah it consciously willingly exposing yourself to new situations and whatever comes out of that at least you've got yeah the knowledge that you you're an agent in your own 
life and new possibilities beget new possibilities. Yes, and it's very important not to position yourself into an exclusive corner of this is who I am, this is what I do. Mm. Um, is that you're open to things at whatever level that might be. Yeah. You know, at the moment, just recovering from illness. I know I probably shouldn't audition for a play at the moment. My short-term memory is a bit all over the place. <laughs> um, and so I'm sort of, I'm not doing that. But I'm still open to the possibility of helping and being part of a crew and making something happen. Mm. Um, and I, I just, that philosophy, I think, is introduced me to a lot of very interesting situations and people. So, say yes. Say yes. Say yes. Well, Timothy Robert Fifield. Have we eaten enough bruschetta now? I think we have. Yes, the five-minute bruschetta um, <laughs> that was lovingly created from a recipe suggested by Paul McCauley, but realised by Tim Fifield. Tomatoes on bread. Tomatoes on bread with olive oil and seasoning. Get it now. <laughs> While stocks last. Before Brexit. Because we might have French bread. <laughs> a fetid English bread. Yeah. yeah. You only want to eat a, a light Brexit <laughs> at that point. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. We it's been a pleasure. It. Thank you very much. Thank you. We're shaking hands. Shaking hands silently. <laughs> <laughs> We're nodding like at the end of a news cast, but you can't see. Yeah, and I'm shuffling some papers. <laughs>
fully himself and even more tuned in, I think, to what's wonderful and good about life. And and he's already charged or percolating with ideas for how he's going to create something that's... Uh, is born out of that whole experience and I can't wait to see it so go for it Tim. So that brings us to the end of this run of creative loving spirit. So I am thinking about doing another run there are plenty more conversations I'd love to have with people um, and that might materialize in some form some point in time maybe maybe this year maybe this year but certainly the rest of the summer is uh, downtime. So um, subscribe um, or some other way, tie a knot in your digital handkerchief um, if you want to know when that's going to be. And in the meantime, happy making things, even if it's just breakfast or your bed or some masterpiece. Thank you so much for listening. For now, goodbye. <laughs>